The reading is Acts chapter 20, verses 1 to 12, um, and it's on page 1116 in the Church Bibles. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece where he stayed three months. Because some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Socrates, son of Pyrrhus from Berea Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Darb, Timothy also, Antichicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas, but we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down and threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said, he's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Thank you so much, Aaron. Great job on the names, especially. So thank you for that. Uh, my name's Morris. I'm one of the leaders of the church. I'll be talking us through that passage for the next few minutes. Let me pray for us as we do that. Lord, we thank you that your word is so full of such great encouragements for us, um, pointing us to the Lord Jesus who loves us and gave himself for us. And we pray today we would see him clearly, love him and trust him and live for him. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, let me begin by giving you a window into the world that many of you, sadly, do not get to experience day to day, conferences for pastors. Uh, this is not one that I've attended because I want to be rude about them, so I thought best not put a picture of someone that I know. Uh, so this picture is just a Google search of pastor conference. So church leaders sometimes get together and like you've got to go because you've got to learn from other people and you don't want your church to become a little island disconnected from what everyone else is doing. So going to meet with other church leaders, it's a good thing to do, I see that. But given that our message is that our value and identity comes from Jesus and you don't need to prove anything to him and you can be satisfied with the work that God has given you to do in Jesus, and he is pleased with you all the time, no matter what you do, given that's why the, what the gospel is offering, you might be surprised at some of the ways that pastors behave. I don't know, if you're a teacher 
Maybe you have to go to teachers' conferences. Do you find that it's like everyone is trying to show that they're the best teacher, but that they work in the hardest school? The pastor's conference might be familiar to you then. Or if you're a nurse, you go to nurses' conferences, everyone is trying to show they're the best nurse, and they're doing the hardest thing in their hospital. You're getting the vibe of pastor's conferences there. Everybody just goes on and on about what they are doing being the best. And I just think, you know, I love our church. But it's quite normal. No offence to you. I hope you don't feel offended by that. But it was just like doing normal church stuff. Is that okay? And honestly, sometimes you can just come away depressed. And I go, but I do go so that our church doesn't come disconnected. So you can thank me later for that. If I've uh, come away discouraged from talking to other church leaders about that, this passage in Acts has been a good tonic and reminder to me to reflect. Uh, Because this week and the next section that we'll do in two weeks' time, because we're not here next week, it appears to be about Paul, the great missionary's adventures. It appears to be about his wonderful projects that he could share with at the conference, and everybody would say, wow, you're so great. But in fact, what it's about is the, I guess you could call it the magic, the dynamism, the energy of what is going on in Acts being handed over to normal local churches. That's what's going on in this section of the book. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I just want to be clear, I hope you haven't been put off by my description of Christian leaders there. But don't worry, I am not here to commend pastors' conferences to you. You never have to go. Well done. But normal local churches, gatherings of people who know they are loved and saved by Jesus, I am here to commend those to you. Because in those places, God's Holy Spirit is doing amazing things. Sometimes it looks hidden underneath what's normal and everyday. But that is where the Holy Spirit's dynamism is. There's two things we're going to see today. The first one is this. The gospel snowballs. Snowballs. Uh, I was trying to find a picture. We use that phrase snowball, meaning like it gets bigger and bigger and it moves faster and faster. In fact, I think snowballs don't do that, do they? So it's not a very good picture. Like if you stand at the top of a hill and push off a snowball, it'll probably just stop in the snow. So really a better description here would be like the gospel avalanches, which is the picture that I've got there. Uh, The gospel just picks up and goes beyond what anybody has planned for it to do. And that's what we see happening in this section of Acts. First one begins, after the uproar ceased. That's the background to what we're reading this week. Last week, Paul caused a riot. Well, not actually Paul. Uh, It was a very angry silversmith called Demetrius caused a riot. Never cross jewellery makers, is the moral of the story. And this next bit just seems almost like a little bit of filler, like calm after the storm. It just describes Paul went to Macedonia and then to Greece, and then he had to leave because of a plot against him, which is his normal life. And then there's a list of people's names. And then at the end of verse uh, 6, there's a boring detail about travel arrangements. It feels like one of those sections where it's like, meanwhile, back at the ranch. You know, something else is going on. And Luke is about to change story, so he thought he'd fill in some details of Paul's missionary journeys. But that's not 
what Luke is doing. He's never do that. He's very careful about what he puts into his book. And Luke, who is with Paul here, there is a Berean, a Thessalonian, someone from Derby, someone from Lystra, and two people from the province of Asia. These are all places where Paul has spent the last couple of years evangelizing. And this is what is happening. Paul's missionary journey, wherever he goes and he starts churches and God's spirit is his work, people are joining him on mission. These are all places where he has started brand new churches. But those people aren't, you know, sitting at home thinking, I'm glad Paul came here. Those churches are sending people to join the missionary band. You might be forgiven for thinking that Paul is the hero of the story. That's not true. Luke wants to tell us Paul's story because it's important for the history of the church. But here Luke is just giving us a little window that this whole thing is a team effort. It's not about one person. Everywhere it goes, a church starts, and then people from those churches snowball into the mission too. The story of the church is much bigger than the story of Paul. You could think, oh, Paul is the one with the Jewish background, and he's the one commissioned by God, and he's the one whose story that Luke is telling. But Luke just puts us in to say, just, just to be aware, guys, the church's story is much bigger and wider and is flying out into the world much more than I can record here. It's snowballing far beyond Paul's controller command or anybody else's. There's an avalanche of people from all over the world joining this team. Where there are spirit-empowered people sharing the message about Jesus, it will always gather pace beyond the people that you might think are amazing leaders. Where the gospel and the spirit are truly at work, it will form a team of people who, no matter where they're from, no matter how young Christians they are, have an important part to play in the next thing happening. And I love the way in this, they are named, they are recognized, they're involved. Luke really wants us to know these individuals matter to what Paul appears to be doing. Luke is saying, (laughs) Luke is saying, uh, I want to tell you Paul's story But the church that is forming is never about one very important person. It is a snowballing movement that goes on all over the world, not under anybody's command. That's why you should be very nervous of any church structure that puts one important person at the top. Can I say, where we actually cooperate with God's plan and we get on with doing this work that Paul's doing, that is actually true. I mean, I believe it's true because the Bible teaches it. It's also true in my experience. It would be tempting for me or another leader to say, hey, everyone, this is what we are doing. You should come and get on board. The church's story, it's the story of what the leaders decide, and you are sort of bit bark players who can step in it you want. Some people actually want their leaders to be like that, to boss everybody around and lead strongly. But here is the truth if I actually pause and look and listen at the church. I'm playing my part, as are other people that you see at the front. But if I talk and listen, I find that the real work of the church, that is, bringing the gospel to the world, is not even majority about people with platforms or who go to conferences or who write books. 
the church is actually progressing doing what we should be doing when the new Christian goes and tells their family what they believe. Or it's the person, many of whom are here in this room, who stand up for what's right in their workplace. It's the person becoming a Christian, okay, we play a part in that if they become a Christian here in our country, and then returning to their home country. It's a parent opening the Bible with their children. It's the quiet person coming to the prayer meeting. It's you taking your first step into helping in a summer mission or stepping up to lead in your Christian union. That's not my plan. I'm not, you know, ordering anybody to do any of that. It's the way God builds. He includes and his spirit fills people from all sorts of places and backgrounds and empowers all of you to go and serve him in the places where you are every day. It's a snowball. It's an avalanche. It gathers speed and gets out of here beyond what I can plan. I discovered the other day, I got home, bottom of my shoe is feeling a bit strange, and I discovered when I looked and I got home that I stood on something sticky and then stood on a post-it which had someone's shopping list. It was a very exciting insight into someone else's life. They needed a lot of mange too. <laughs> what were they making? I don't know. The gospel is a little bit like that <laughs> in Paul's experience. It's very sticky. He goes and starts a church somewhere and then Paul moves on, but people sort of stick to him and they move on with him. He takes them like a shopping list stuck to his shoe. Even from these young, scared, under-attacked churches, people from there are going into the world with Paul. For a while, a few years ago, I attended a very formal parish church. It was nothing like this. It was all people wearing robes, stained glass, incense. And in that system of church, people tend to think the person they call the priest at the front is the important one. They actually think the priest sort of represents the church. And he's up there taking us to God, and we're just the sort of, you know, plebs. And he does the work of taking us to God. That's, in the church that I went to, that was not what the priest thought, but it's what lots of people probably in the village or the community, or when people attended the church thought. He's the one doing the business here. And I remember once sitting beside this very elderly lady, lady Mary, from Lancaster. She's retired. And she was just chatting to me about her life. And she said, now that I'm retired, I like to get out of the house and I've got a free bus pass. So I just go out every day and get the bus places. Because it's a nice way of meeting people. And when I sit beside someone, I always chat and I drop in that I'm a Christian. Or I say, I've found peace of mind in life now. Or I say, I think Jesus is really great. Sometimes people want to talk to me. And so I carry in this large handbag she had. I carry like little booklets to give people. And that's how I spend my days. Catching the bus, chatting, giving booklets to people. It's just like... That is where the work of the church is happening. Like the guy at the front can do what he likes with his funny prayers. The work of the church is that woman taking the gospel. It's out of his control. He's no one's telling her to do it. No one's saying this is our strategy. It just snowballs out into the world. It's little to do with what happens actually in meetings gospel's just going out. You know, churches have to have leaders so we can do things together. But the story of the leader is not the story of the church. The church's story is so Peter the Berean, Aristarchus from Thessalonica, Mary from Lancaster, 
You are not tools in my project or anyone else's. It's you out there every day, filled with the Spirit. It's you joining in with God's mission. Luke is telling Paul's story because it's important for us to understand that. But the Spirit is pushing the work of the church out to normal people who become Christians from all over the place and the churches that they are part of. And actually, Paul's going to formally hand the baton over to the churches in Acts 20, which we'll see in two weeks' time. So can I encourage you, just from that little list of names that looks like a little bit of filler in the text, can I encourage you to step into your role in God's mission at the world? Please don't look at me and think, well, I could never do what he does. Uh, You probably could. (laughs) Uh, You don't have to be that talented, believe me. But you might look at church leaders and think, I could never do that, so maybe there's no room for me. But that's not right. Have you not been a Christian long? There's a rule for you. Are you not living in your majority culture? There's a rule for you. If you feel weak and not very gifted, the Bible assures us that the spirit means you have a rule. If your work is so busy, you can't just sit in the bus and evangelize all day like Mary from Lancaster. I get that. You're stuck somewhere else, maybe somewhere you don't want to be. But you can join in with what God is doing there. That is the work of the church outside of here. The story of the spirit in the church is that people from everywhere who don't know much yet, who don't seem qualified, are an indispensable part of the team. So never ever avoid your church small group because you think, I've got nothing to say. That's not right. You always have something to say. God's Spirit will give you something encouraging to say. Or maybe you're the opposite. Maybe you feel a bit like Paul in this story. If you're slightly older in our church, you can feel like that, being in a church full of people who who feel much younger than you. You think, I should always be leading and speaking the way and giving my opinion. Remember the way the gospel gets into the world. The Spirit fills the unlikely, the new, and the insignificant. So just pause for a minute and listen. So Peter, Aristarchus, Secundus. There's a place in your life where you have a chance to hear about Mary from Lancaster and what she's doing and how that's bringing the church. Maybe you think a small group's not for me because there's not enough chance for me to speak. You'll learn a lot by listening, even to people who don't seem like main players in the story. It's the first thing we see. Here's the second thing we see. The church takes the baton. That's someone handing a baton to someone. And it's a picture of a book called Saving Eutychus. Eutychus is the boy who falls out of the window because he falls asleep. And the book is called Saving Eutychus. And the subtitle is How to Preach God's Word and Keep People Awake. (laughs) Maybe you think I could do with giving it a read if you're thinking of falling asleep at this moment. By the way, just to say, sometimes people come to church for a little snooze and they think it's like the cinema that nobody notices if you're sleeping. We do notice that. We're just polite, but someday that might break, just to warn you. But anyway, it would have been impossible to stop not notice Eutychus falling asleep in church because he fell out of the window. Now, I would think that someone dying and being resurrected might have disrupted the service, you would think. Uh, It's never happened to me, but I was talking a little while ago to a friend who's a church leader, and when he was preaching during his talk, someone actually had a heart attack in the service, and there was a doctor present who did CPR, and they called an ambulance, and the person survived, 
but I think it would go without saying, the service stopped. But Paul goes down, resurrects Eutychus. I mean, it sounds like a crazy thing even to say in a sentence. Just resurrects Eutychus. Goes back up and then leads communion. Continues teaching them to the morning and goes home. And I love the way Luke's understated. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. It's like, I bet they were. (laughs) Um, The person who had a heart attack at my friend's church was okay. It was a non-miraculous healing in that sense, as in a doctor healed them. Doctors are miraculous, not slagging any of you off. The doctor was involved in the healing. But even in that case, it was all they talked about in church for several months. Do you remember what happened? It was so dramatic. Such a drama. But this happens in Acts, and it almost passes sort of without comment, apart from they were greatly comforted. And Paul just goes straight back to doing normal church stuff. Now, the next story in Acts 20 is where Paul actually formally passes the baton to the leaders of the local church. He basically says, I've done the job of starting the church, but now the job passes to the church to start more churches. How you teach and how you serve. That is the way this avalanche of God's power comes onto the earth. It isn't really to do with miracles. It's to do with the normal church looking at God's word and breaking bread. Now, just to be clear, uh, I don't think there's any reason to think in Acts or anywhere else in the New Testament that God can't or doesn't do miraculous things anymore. And in fact, we've seen, I think, in Acts, you may well experience that as God's power breaks out in a certain situation, and I'd be delighted if that happened. But Paul, I think, here is setting us up for the rest of the New Testament where the miraculous really becomes, well, the miraculous, inverted commas, really becomes unusual because it becomes the church's job to point to the kingdom through speaking God's word and enacting and embodying God's word by taking communion together. The miracle in this story is almost forgotten about, though undoubtedly appreciated by Eutychus' family, because Paul goes straight back to teaching the gospel and breaking bread. And he's about to give a highly emotional speech to church leaders, telling them to continue with those things, plus serving people who need it. So I think anyone who says miraculous gifts have ceased are saying more than they can possibly know. How could we know that? God can do what he likes. But anyone who says we need miracles and healings and resurrections all the time for the gospel to spread, that's just not what Paul or Luke seems to think. And that can easily become an excuse. None of us can force miracles to happen. So we can begin to think, well, God's not really doing anything in our day. None of us can make it happen. Um, There are certain church cultures where all they do is sit round and pray for that to happen. And I'm very pro praying for that to happen, so please be clear. But there is actually something for the church to do in the meantime. Get the word to people and embody the word in their community, taking communion. Sure, I'll resurrect someone, Paul says, but then it's back to breaking the bread and opening the scriptures. It is clear what he thinks matters And that's clear when he commissions the church leaders in the next chapter as well. The truth and Christians loving each other. 
Now, I guess you all would have come with a spring in your step or a camera or a TV crew this morning if you thought I was going to raise a month from the dead. It would have been quite a show, a circus. I'm not sure it would really advance the gospel much. Can you imagine if it happened? I don't think then everybody would settle down to listen to me give this talk. It would, might even be unwise to start that. No, the word preached and participated through communion seems to be the way that Paul is handing over for the gospel to keep snowballing in the world. And of course, that has been the way the church has worked. Of course, God has healed people and done miraculous things. But generally speaking, this unstoppable revolution has happened through groups gathering around the Bible, and participating in the message through breaking bread, and as Paul will say in Acts 20, loving one another. That's, that's been it. That's how the church has grown. What, what are we doing here, and why is it worth drawing other people in? What power is there here to draw people from every culture to listen and be changed and join in with the mission? It's not in me. And it's not in any individual in our congregation empowered to do miraculous things. The way this victory march has continued from Jesus until now has mostly normally been gatherings of people around the Bible and remembering Jesus through communion who have then started other gatherings of people around the Bible who've remembered Jesus through communion. I wonder what you think when you come to church. I wonder what you feel like or think we are up to here by getting together. Maybe you think we just come, we sing some songs, we listen for a while, we have coffee, we go home. I mean, maybe that's what you're experiencing. I do wonder why anyone in the world, never mind several billion people in the world, would be doing that this morning. There's a lot of things you can do in a Sunday. Why is nearly a third of the world's population doing this? I sort of think, well, they must be really bored. You know, sometimes people do this and they even fall asleep, fall out the window. No, it's because as we come and God's word is opened, people from every culture indwelt by God's spirit are discerning how the living God is addressing them. It was in our song, our kids' song earlier, as we talk to each other, speaking truth in love, the Bible says people will sense the living God is among you. This avalanche will pick up speed where people from everywhere, different experiences will join in that unique community project of hearing God from the Bible. That's not a resurrection, but it is a miracle. In a moment, we will break bread. We will take communion. Are we just eating bread and drinking wine because that's what Christians do? You know, you swallow it, you pray, you sing, then you go home. But in a moment, what is going to happen? People from all over the world, different ages and stages, are going to walk to a table to publicly profess their faith in a first century Jewish person and his death to put them right with the God who made the world. It is miraculous, isn't it, that anyone would come to believe that. 
It is miraculous, isn't it, that anyone in the 21st century today would want to stand up and walk to a table and say that, profess that. And in fact, what's happening around the world this morning is billions of people are visualizing eating his body and drinking his blood because they think the only hope for eternal life is in him. It's not a resurrection, but it is a miracle. These things are so remarkable that I'd like to think that even if I had done an amazing miracle just a moment ago, that I'd have Paul's conviction and the nerve to come straight back up here, open God's word and call you to the table. Because the church hearing God, receiving Jesus by faith, the church made up of unimportant people from everywhere in the world and all backgrounds, the church that is taking part in that is part of this movement of faith to the world. Coming to church seems much more pedestrian than everything people talk about at pastors' conferences, writing books, setting up networks. Can you imagine, if you were Paul, you think you'd want to tell the Utica story at a conference. But that is not his interest. Because the spirit dwelling in communities that listen to the Bible and remember Jesus by eating his body and drinking his blood, that is the seeds of the new creation. That is the home of the love of God. That is the community that snowballs, avalanches out into the world, people sticking to it and then being sent to other places. It's that is God's plan. More than any heroes like Paul.